Hello, and welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. This is Logan Jones, and today's episode is a special one because we are releasing the audio from our live FinTech panel event that we held in Louisville, Kentucky on November 9th. I'm especially excited for you guys to listen to this discussion because not only do you get to hear from three of the top FinTech founders in this region, but we go deep into some key topics around financial technologies, such as how FinTech is democratizing finance, empowering financial equity, and enhancing financial literacy at a rapid pace. Before we jump over to the actual event recording, though, I did want to take a second to thank Chase Bank for supporting us in hosting our first event and for hosting us in their space in Louisville. We thought the event went great, and it really got the entire team really excited about the future of in-person events for both MiddleTech and DevelopLex, which is uh, one of our sister brands that is centered around real estate in Lexington. So keep an eye on our social channels. That's at MiddleTechPod and at DevelopLexPod across all socials, and we'd love to see you out at an event real soon. Uh, before we dive in, we just want to highlight the sponsors that support MiddleTech. Thank you guys for listening. MiddleTech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's Entrepreneurship and Innovation Partner. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to work alongside an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information at kyinnovation.com. We are also supported by Endeavor Midwest. Operating in 40 countries around the world, Endeavor selects, supports, and invests in the world's top founders driving job creation, wealth creation, and inspiration. In 2021 alone, Endeavor entrepreneur-led companies provided more than 3.4 million high-quality jobs and generated over 42 billion in revenue globally. Endeavor's Midwest office supports companies like App Harvest, Rabbit Hole, El Toro, Interapt, and many more. You can learn more about Endeavor Midwest, Endeavor, and their venture fund, Endeavor Catalyst at endeavor.org. Thank you guys for coming to this. If you saw us promoting this event, this is our first in-person event. So if it looks like we're winging it in any way, it's because we absolutely are. Um, we're figuring it out as we go. So thank you guys for being a part of that and supporting us by being here. Uh, first off, we just want to start by saying thanks to Chase for letting us use the space, for sponsoring this. Thanks to Awesome Inc. for letting us use the equipment that is projecting my voice uh, out to you guys and out on this podcast when it when it airs. And I also want to thank our team, um, uh, TJ Barnett and Nate Anstamasa worked really hard to make this happen. So thank you guys for, for making it a reality. Uh, so now to introduce our panelists, we've got an awesome panel for you guys centered around fintech in Kentucky. And we've got some of the top fintech founders that are building some really exciting companies that we felt that you guys should know about. Uh, so starting here, we've got Rafi Kayat, uh, who is the founder of Borderless. Uh, we've got Demetrius Gray, who's the founder of Captain. We've had him on the podcast several times. We've had Rafi on the podcast as well. And then we've got our very own Evan Knowles, who is uh, MiddleTech's co-host as well, who is the founder of Simba. Um, so we're really excited to dive into what these, uh, what these founders are building and just have a general conversation around fintech and what it means for the future uh, of software. So I really want to start by just framing the discussion around fintech and what, what this movement of fintech is really doing. So fintech is democratizing finance right now. Uh, through APIs, uh, banking has now been able to have user experiences built on top of it that allows uh, use cases to be built for communities, for uh, backgrounds, for people in ways that it necessarily hasn't been before. Uh, so just to kick this off, uh, we'll start just at a high level, um, talking about you know, what your all's companies do uh, and why it's considered a fintech company. So Rafi, if you wouldn't mind starting us off, tell us what Borderless does uh, and, and why it's classified as fintech. Awesome. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rafi, and thanks, Logan, for the introduction. 
So Borderless is a global payment solution, and we specialize in enabling startups, marketplaces, allowing them to make payments to 120 plus countries seamlessly, affordably, and also via API. Um, and so one of the things that um, is difficult about that when it comes to payments is that there are different licenses and regulations that you need to have. And so in the United States, in a unique case, you actually need to have um, look at the regulations for each state for you guys to start to become a money transmitting business. And so it becomes very high barrier entry for just a business to get into that space. Um, and so one of the things that we do is we empower, you know, startups, marketplaces, the ability to embed payments into their application uh, while they meet regulations, but also uh, allowing them to automate and also process payments more seamlessly around the world. Um, and so um, Borderless today processes millions of dollars and thousands of transactions per month. Uh, we were awarded um, uh, Payments Tech of the Year at the US FinTech Awards. Uh, in 2022, and we are also awarded uh, Visa Direct, part of the Visa Everywhere initiative. Um, and so really kind of what our secret weapon is, is that, and how we are a fintech company itself, is that we're enabling embedding financial payments into any application uh, via technology, which is through our API. Awesome. Demetrius? So, so um, I need to talk to you, by the way. <laughs> There's some people on my team in the room, they're all looking at me like, you haven't talked to him yet, you know. Um, but um, so, uh, you know, I'm a local founder, been around the block, it feels like. I never thought I'd actually be an OG in this space, but uh, kind of am at this point. And so I see a few other OGs out there. Um, but um, at the end of the day, what we do at Captain is we help policyholders and their contractors after natural disasters rebuild faster. Um, when you really think about what is challenging as it relates to natural disasters is that um, it's a devastating moment for a lot of people. Um, and on the heels of you know, climate change and more events happening, it's really important that people can get access to funds really, really quickly so that they can make really great decisions about what they're going to do next now that they maybe don't have a house or don't have a roof or whatever it might be. And so I say that all as we uh, are watching Hurricane uh, Nicole hit the coast of Florida, um, and that's now the second hurricane this year. You know, and so um, we are the largest buyer of insurance claims in the country, and um, we've raised $107.5 million at this point, $100 million in debt, um, and another $7.5 million in equity, and really have sort of... Um, kind of turn the industry upside down with this just new idea that, you know, you can use fintech to really change really significant problems. We have all heard of, you know, the Lower Ninth Ward and Hurricane Katrina or Long Island and Hurricane Sandy and the thousands of homes in each of those communities that to this day are still not rebuilt. Um, and so as we deal with these sort of larger looming climate emergencies, it's really, really important that not only do we address climate change, but we also adapt to the new reality that we're going to have more events more frequently, and we're actually going to need to be able to respond to them quickly so that we're more resilient. And so um, that's Captain at Score. Did I answer that? Yeah, no, you got it. And I, I think that's really cool with what Captain's doing is, is essentially leveraging finance to help people recover 
quicker is kind of to put it into a sentence. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Evan, tell us a little bit about Simba, why you guys are our fintech company. Yep. So the buzzword around what we do is called vertical SaaS. We're building a business management platform for residential real estate agents. So one thing people don't understand about residential real estate agents often is that they're 1099 contractors and they're 100% commission paid. So that creates really complex uh, situations around their business and their finances, especially around their financial health. And so what we've done is we've built a platform that combines their customer relationship management and their sales insights with their financial and banking so they can organize and manage their business in one place. So we help them manage contacts, their transactions that they're working, and then we pull in their bank accounts via Plaid and help them do their bookkeeping, their profit loss, their taxes, uh, all in one platform. So they can manage their business on the go no matter where they are. Uh, and that's really important to that business because one of the biggest pain points within the residential real estate space is that these people are businesses and they don't treat themselves as such. And so you see very high churn within the residential real estate space and the majority of reasons that they churn out of the space is around their finances. And so we're leveraging, like I said, Plaid to bring new user experiences to residential real estate agents to mix situate, to mix data that traditionally hasn't been put together so they can view their business in new ways and manage it in new ways. Um, so we're FinTech just because we're bringing in their bank accounts and their transactions from their financial side of their business into the rest so they can, again, manage their business in one place. Yeah. And I think one of the questions, at least that I had when I first started learning about fintech is like, okay, this is cool. We're leveraging, uh, you know, building on top of APIs to bring new experiences uh, to new groups of people. But how do fintech companies actually make money? I think was one of the first questions that I had when I started learning what fintech was. Uh, so starting with Evan, we'll work our way back over. Uh, talk about the revenue model uh, as it pertains to the fintech side uh, of your business. Yeah. So today it's all SaaS. Uh, so it's all subscription. So a real estate agent would come in and pay us a monthly or an annual subscription. Over time, we'll start to balance that with more transactional revenue from the fintech side of our platform. So we'll start to issue debit cards and accounts that are literally banking uh, banking accounts that, you know, from the agent's perspective are Simba accounts. But on our back end, there'll be a, a bank that's providing us that banking as a service. Uh, so we'll start to issue cards. And from that, we'll have interchange interest and, and fees so we can start to factor or give them their commissions up front and take fees on that commission that we give them before a transaction might close. So there's a lot of ways that eventually we'll start to layer in more transactional, more traditional fintech revenue, but today it's mostly subscription. Cool. And Demetrius, as far as Captain is concerned, uh, just to, I guess, provide a little bit more of a base level of understanding of what you guys are actually doing. Whenever a disaster hits, people's homes get destroyed, they file an insurance claim that can take you know, 30, 60, even more days to, to actually file and get, you know, construction started on their home repairs. So pick it up from there and talk about your all's revenue model as you help people rebuild. Yeah, I think this is one of the interesting ways in which fintech can really solve problems and not actually involve the consumer. And so in that transaction, everybody's going to pick a contractor. They're going to go out and find somebody to do the work. And so what we then do is we say, hey, we know that that work is going to be paid for by an insurance company or by the federal government. And that's good risk in our minds. We're like, oh, hey, we know insurance companies have been around for 100 years. Like, we know that the government's always going to pay. And so we feel like that's good enough to sort of say, hey, we'll advance the money. And so the beauty of that is that the contractor really wants to get paid, right? He wants to get paid for the work that he's doing and or she. And... What that means in turn is that they're willing to give up some portion of their profit 
to get that money right now. And so what Captain does is it says, okay, in return for us advancing the money, we're going to take a fee out of the profit so that you can get it right away. And so now there are hundreds of contractors who do that every single day uh, with us. And some of them love the fee more than others. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it really is moving the project along faster. Love it. And uh, Rafi, with your company, uh, being a payments company, uh, you know, you're moving tons of money all over the place all the time. Talk about how your company makes money. Yeah, so our company makes money in two folds. Uh, so the first is a subscription model to get access to the API that we have. Um, and we have our subscriptions, you know, they start anywhere like starting at $100 per month and they go up depending on kind of the needs and requirements. So we really try to cater for every business, whether it's small or big. Um, and then the other part of that is a transactional revenue. Um, when it comes to a payments company, it's it's very hard to um, predict you, you know your your next month revenue in that sense to keep it stable because it's very much transactional and transactions happen on season. So you might be invested in an industry like travel where travel might be very high during the summertime, but then you know comes you know the winter time travel doesn't happen as much. So you start to have to account you know as a company on different industries and capitalize on the seasons as well. Mm. And you mentioned it there, and I think it's something worth defining a little bit. He said API. Uh, so for, for those who don't know what an API is, it stands for Application Program Interface. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but really, APIs are what power fintech in the first place, because you have to build on top of APIs that provide a lot of the banking services uh, that these founders are building on top of. Uh, so one of the questions that I, I kind of wanted to ask to just demystify how these companies are built is what, what types of APIs are you leveraging uh, to provide the services that you are. So Rafi, I'll start with you again. Um, talk a little bit about you know how your product has been built in terms of the APIs that you guys leverage to do what you do. Yeah, so really kind of the main um, thing that we have built internally is we've built a smart infrastructure that essentially connects to multiple financial institutions. And a lot of these institutions have their own APIs. And then we've also tapped into other um, fintech enablers. Uh, I know um, I've mentioned Plaid. Um, they're essentially an API that allows you to connect your bank account to any type of um, you know, application. And it, it gets to share your financial data, stuff that your bank already has uh, with other people. So that's kind of been um, really you know, happening for the past few years. And that's really why we're here today. <laughs> without those uh, initiatives, without those APIs, we would not be here. Um, you know, banks would have still owned that data, but now they're actually sharing it. And now we're making, you know, cool, exciting things from it. Um, so we actually, um, you know, uh, have something similar to Blad called Yodli. Uh, they're uh, actually a, a bigger entity than Plaid. They do the same thing and a few others. Uh, and then we also directly connect with a few financial institutions uh, and have direct partnerships with them. And so the idea is instead of you building all of that yourself, and especially, you know, now multiply it over 120 plus countries, uh, you get to use one platform, one API, and then you get the power of, of all of it. Yeah. And that also streamlines the uh, security and, and compliance alongside of it at the same time, which is would be a, a massive hurdle to try and clear as a, as a startup company. Uh, Demetrius, passing it on to you, talk about the, the APIs that you guys leverage. Yeah, so, you know, there are tons of them, but um, I would generally say that, like, because of the approach that we've taken in our business, we've actually done the inverse. 
So we have really not started to build a lot of the infrastructure because we first had to validate that the funding model that we were using would actually work <laughs> before we actually built anything. And so what we've done thus far is we've actually gotten the financial model right so that now you can build the actual technical infrastructure or the rails around that type of transaction, right? And so <clears throat> when we think about what that means, that means giving banks the ability to now leverage buying and funding their own disaster recovery efforts um, from their balance sheet. And so when a chase wants to decide, hey, we'd love to figure out how to help our customers after a natural disaster, well, today they have no way to underwrite that risk. And so the way we look at it is to say, okay, let us figure out the financial model first and what that instrument looks like, and then build the technical capacity for them to be able to, to, to do it at scale. So Chase is a big org, right? Bank of America is a big org. I won't say any other names because I think that would probably we get kicked out of here, right? <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, it really is about like building the infrastructure around something that then works really well. We use Plaid, we use Bubble, we use Retool, we use a lot of systems. Um, I think at last I counted, there were almost 46 of them. Um, but, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's really about our ability to make sure that we understand well enough how this new financial instrument is going to function so that then you can build your own protocols on type of, on top of it. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. Evan, uh, I know you and I have had all sorts of conversations just through middle tech about all the various APIs that are out there. So talk about, maybe talk about from your perspective, how you first approached this when you first started building Simba, you know, what, what made it approachable? Uh, to even get into to fintech in the first place and then give some more comprehensive view of, of what it looks like now. Yeah, so to speak more about Plaid, I think Plaid's one of the main uh, APIs that so many platforms are utilizing, especially consumer applications. I'm sure most of the people in the crowd have interfaced with Plaid before. So Robinhood uh, and so many companies like that that have popped up over the last five to 10 years leverage that API. And what, what ended up happening there and where I got so passionate about FinTech is there's a whole new data opportunity around finance that was never opened until then. Uh, so basically what happens is you as a consumer have all of this data that sits in your bank account that might be with Chase, but the second you wanna use this new app over here, uh, before Plaid, you wouldn't have been able to because that that app would not have been able to consume your, your banking data that you use every day from your cards, your bank accounts, and what Plaid does is like Rafi was saying a second ago, they've plugged into every single major bank in the United States and so many others, so that when you want to use a financial application that requires that data, it just immediately ports it over into there so that you get all of the past banking transactions uh, that you can leverage in new ways. And so for Simba, we connect to an agent's personal or business bank accounts that they use for their uh, agency or for their own personal business. And then we show them all of their banking transactions and allow them to do their bookkeeping. So is this personal or business, what's the tax category on this, and all of that data is provided to us again through Plaid, and then we leverage another API called Abound, which plugs into the IRS's tax data. And so it's a tax engine that allows us to predict what a tax category is, it spits out uh, tax documents automatically, and so there's been this whole infrastructure built around just banking transactions thanks to Plaid and many other platforms. And so the reason it became so approachable to me was once you kind of start to see the building blocks within FinTech and you start to learn what people's pain points are, for us, it was real estate agents. You just start to go do the research. Okay, 
a research uh, a, 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 an agent struggles with with cash flow and their bookkeeping. So let's go find platforms that help with that. Okay, they struggle with tax filing. Let's go see if there's an API for that. And there was. And so really, it's a matter of finding problems. And then you go search for the APIs. They're like building blocks and start to piece them together. And that's what's so fun about the space right now is that it's so new. And there's so many new APIs popping up that you can start to construct brand new user experiences using the data that they've had all along within their bank account, but is now available through something like Plaid. Yeah, and I really want to zoom in on the on the API thing for a bit, just because I know we've got some founders in the crowd, some, maybe some people that want to be founders. I think APIs are so fascinating because it's essentially software building blocks. Uh, the way I think of APIs are it's like pipelines that allow data to flow seamlessly between two different pieces of software. You can add a lot of really cool user experiences into your piece of software, into a completely new piece of software, just by compiling the right building blocks and, and building something completely new, which is what a, a lot of these founders sitting up here have done today. Uh, and I want to transition this conversation to more around financial equity. And I kind of struggled to spit it out there at the beginning. Uh, but really what, what these founders are doing is building financial services for very uh, niche customer profiles, for, for people that uh, have maybe been underserved in finance until this point. Um, so I want to go through and just talk to, to each of the founders. You know, how are you guys empowering equity uh, through the way you serve your customers? Uh, so Rafi, I'll start with you again. Uh, just talk about the services that you guys provide and how that is helping improve financial equity. Yeah, so <clears throat> actually we're doing it via a B2B2C model. So our customers are the businesses and then a lot of their customers are the end consumers. So I'll take an example. I'm not sure if you guys know the company, GoPuff. They're like similar to you know Uber, et cetera. Um, and uh, a lot of, so they utilize borderless to pay out their drivers. Um, so one of the ways that we're doing that is not just in the United States, we're doing that globally. And so if you have, for example, people uh, working in the United Kingdom, now they're getting access to new stream of revenue uh, with a company that's located, for example, overseas. Same with content writers, developers, uh, everyone's going remote nowadays, right? And they have someone either, you know, um, in Asia or, you know, Eastern Europe or Latin America. And so we're empowering those people in different countries to actually get access to new lines of revenue and work that they didn't have access to. So we're actually empowering, you know, underserved market minorities um, and, and un, un, unbanked people as well um, to actually uh, create a new line of revenue so they can improve their daily lives. And that's kind of the financial equity that, that we're able to provide to people. Yeah. I you said the word there, it's just access. And I think that's, you know, one of the most important parts of, of financial equity is giving access to those that, uh, might not have traditionally had it and, and giving it in a, a streamlined way, like what you guys are doing through APIs through that B2B2C model. Um, Demetrius, talk a little about your all's uh, um, customer experience, what you, how you guys are serving your customers to provide more financial equity. I remember when I first heard about Captain's Business Model, I was like, oh shit, like this is, this is something new, this is something really cool because you guys are having a really direct impact, taking that time to, to rebuild from you know, 60 to 90 days all the way down to getting, getting started in a few days. So talk about how you guys are serving your customers in that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it's pretty clear. I mean, I think for us, a lot of people don't think about, you know, what happens. This is the quandary I was always having, which was like, okay, so you see that big number on the news, like $100 billion worth of damage, you know, and Lester Holt's giving it to you. And he's like, I'm like, well, who gets that money? 
you know, that's what my question always was. And then you'd sort of think later, you'd be like, well, I thought you said it was $100 billion. And and then you look around and you're like, well, they're still rebuilding. Like, they're still, like, it didn't get spent in the right way. And so um, the, the interesting thing about equity for us is that um, it's universal, right? Um, Mother Nature actually doesn't care what your income is, right? She sort of reigns on the just and the unjust, the rich, the poor, right? It doesn't matter where you are. And, and we have customers who, and policyholders who, um, they are, you know, in million-dollar homes that are average homes, you know, in some markets. And, and then in some markets, you're talking about a $200,000 house. It really is a diversity of people who are encountering these issues. And um, but then add on top of that that you have small businesses that are really struggling to figure out, okay, well, hey, I have more demand than I've ever seen before in my entire business. And I'm a mom-and-pop construction company, and I've been in business for 50 years. And now my phone's ringing off the hook, and my line of credit hasn't grown. And so how do I support all of these people, my friends and family and my neighbors, right? Those are the sort of things that we try to solve um, using really creative finance to do that, but really with the understanding that you really can't do it well without technology. You know, you can't ever get to scale without the sort of tech piece coming to bear in the process. And so um, I, I feel like we're incredibly equitable. Um, we work hard at it. Um, there's a lot of folks in this room who think about that every single day. Um, and for us, it starts with like our first core value, which is love people, right? Like, and so it's easier to be equitable when you actually like the people that you're being equitable to. Love that. Uh, Evan, moving on to you. So uh, taking it back to talking about just building for a very specific type of customer and giving them a user experience that can help them be more successful. In your case, you're, you're very targeted towards residential real estate agents. Uh, talk about how your product is increasing and empowering financial equity through helping your target customer. Yeah. I mean, when we first got into the space, we were building, you know, a totally different product. And like many startups do, they they figure out a way to pivot. And when we launched, we built, we were building a, a mobile first CRM for residential real estate agents. They were having big pain points around just being able to leverage technology in their day-to-day -day workflows, uh, which are mostly on the go, jumping from home to coffee shop to, you know, wherever they might be in their car. Um, we started to realize whenever we ask questions about their cash flow and how they manage their sales pipeline, we really started to realize that they were completely underserved from a banking and finance perspective. And so what we found out was if you ask a real estate agent how much money they made, they couldn't tell you. And I haven't found a real estate agent that can tell me how much money they make yet. And the funny thing is, is just it's as simple as somebody like a Chase Bank or a QuickBooks they, they aren't able to niche down to these very small business types like a residential real estate agent. And, and that's where companies like us come in to serve those underserved parts of the economy. And so what we've come in and done is just built a user experience around finance specifically for residential real estate agents. And so our role in this kind of ecosystem around bringing you know, banking services to the underserved is building for an entire sector of the economy that if you ask them what kind of banking products they use, they'll probably tell you they still use their personal credit cards for their business expenses because they just haven't been approached by banks very often. Hey, move your business into our bank. Uh, those kind of things are happening in residential real estate and, res and, and agents are not viewed as completely financially literate people. They're viewed as somebody that really loves to sell homes. They're not really supposed to 
manage the side of their business. And we're trying to build a platform that enables them to start doing that. Um, and that's kind of where we play this role of really niching down banking services to somebody that traditionally hasn't been served very well just by listening to them. Hmm. I love that as well. Um, so kind of the last, last point that I wanted to hit on here is just around financial literacy, which goes right hand in hand with, with financial equity. You increase somebody's financial literacy, helping them understand uh, how to leverage finance better to, to live a better life. Uh, you're also helping them have more financial equity. Uh, I want to just talk uh, a little bit about helping somebody truly understand how to leverage finance. And I think that's truly done through user experience. So I feel like a lot of people struggle with, you know, going to a bank. It just seems so, it seems intimidating to a lot of people. And, you know, you have people that don't leverage banks in the way they should, don't leverage finance in the way that they should. And the way that you can combat that, the way you guys have combated that is through user experience. Um, so talk a little bit about, about how you guys think about the actual the customer interface, how you can make it as easy as possible for somebody to leverage the the product that you guys are using. Rafael, I'll start with you on that one. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I mean, user experience is one of the most important when it comes to FinTech because what you're also solving is how can I complete an action in the least number of steps while staying compliant to my industry uh, and while following all the rules um, and regulations. And so, um, and that becomes the tricky part for every FinTech company is if I can do something on behalf of the user that is redundant, then I'm gonna take that step and do the work and the, you know, on my end so they don't have to do it. And they only need to take the specific numbers of action that they need to do to complete it. Because at that point in time, then you're moving ahead and you're saving them time and also you're saving them money because time is money. And so with that, now you start to come and have a competitive edge. That's where user experience is, is very, very valuable, right? I mean, I'm sure, you know, a captain at Simba, that's been, you know, one of their, the first focus is how can I get, you know, people their money in two steps, right? Uh, where they don't need to hop on a phone call and talk to someone for 20, 30 minutes, or then go to a branch for an hour to make a payment to Hong Kong, because let me tell you, people still do that today. Um, so, so that's kind of one of the ways that we're able to, uh, to empower people with user experience. I love that. Um, Demetrius, talk about your all's user experience. So maybe preface this by talking a little bit, what does it look like for somebody to actually use the, the captain platform? Right well, I, I say that it's a, a room with many doors. Um, so like there are a lot of different ways in which you think about our transaction, there's a lot of stakeholders in the transaction. So there's an insurance company, there's a contractor, there's a salesperson, there's a subcontractor, there's a policyholder. There's all of these different people. And so one of the challenges that we have had is that you have to design for each of them, right? And the thing that we've sort of harped on is like understanding people's depth of knowledge around what do they actually know today, right? And then designing from that point of view based on, you know, if you, you know, went to college, you sort of are familiar with, you know, you know, the first course for freshmen is a 101 course, and then you go to 201 and 301, and, and you're getting increased levels of knowledge around really the same topic. And so for us, that's really how we design specifically for them. Policyholders tend to get the most attention, 
because they have to have information in a very clear and concise way. And frankly, to your point, Rafi, it's like there's a lot of regulation around how you communicate with consumers and what you tell them and what they were presented and did they have the right button at the right place and was it clear and you know and we have our general counsel here and and, and so she's looking at me like yes uh, <laughs> we do have to make sure it's really clear and explicit and our UX UI designers here too so you know so it's like it's such a big piece and part especially for us in a moment where people are so vulnerable right that in some ways even the standard fintech design so when you go and you log into your banking app or you log into um you know cash app or venmo that for us isn't actually good enough because it's presumed that the person who we're dealing with is probably under some distress Right. And so we can't give them a ledger. Right. We've got to be very, very clear about exactly what we're presenting at that moment, because, um, you know, state's attorneys general would eat us alive. Right. Um, and so that's how we think about it in terms of like how we design. It, it takes a lot of energy and effort. I'm not a designer. So hats off to, to Morgan and, and Dana that make sure it's right. I love that. Uh, Evan, talk about that from Simba's perspective. You mentioned there it's a, it's a mobile first interface. So you kind of started right off the bat, knowing that you wanted to build a user experience that really fit real estate agents' lifestyles. Lead that into how you incorporated the uh, the fintech features into the platform as well. Yeah. So like I said, we, we the first pain point we started to realize that we could solve with more of this fintech angle and something like Plaid was, again, we had built a CRM, which helps them manage their deal flow, what, what homes they're selling, um, what their clients are paying for a home and all that feeds into the fact that they're hundred percent commission paid. And so they're a very unique business case. And so the first thing we did was just kind of dive in to their business case, which was again, hundred percent commission paid They're 1099. Those create major pain points for them. And so the two big pain points we want to solve initially were helping them understand their cash flow. And so their cash flow comes down to the home price, their commission splits, referral fees, all of the things that come out of their commission, which is stored in the CRM. And so what we did was make the data entry around the CRM as minimal as possible and focused around their cash flow so that the second the deal goes under contract, they know how much they're gonna net, and they know how much taxes they need to set aside. And then we carry that all the way through to their bookkeeping. And their bookkeeping is important. And they had a lot of pain points around bookkeeping because traditionally they're either using spreadsheets or something like a QuickBooks and QuickBooks is just too robust, it's too much for a real estate agent, they're not gonna use it day to day. But the important thing about bookkeeping for them is if they don't do their bookkeeping, then they don't actually know how much money they're gonna make because that feeds into their taxes, to, to know how much taxes they're liable for as far as business deductions and things of that nature. And so because we combined their sales pipeline with their actual banking via Plaid, we're able to actually listen to their very unique pain points to their business and design around those uh, because they're very underserved, like I said a minute ago. And so really it came down to building something they can use day to day and then listening to their pain points throughout their day around just managing their finances. Because oftentimes you found that a real estate agent didn't pay attention to that until tax season. And by that point it was too late. And then you see a lot of churn again out of the industry because they don't have the money to pay their taxes. Um, so it's really just, again, like I was saying earlier, listening to their pain points, figuring out what's unique about them, and then designing around an experience uh, that's unique because, again, they weren't using QuickBooks. They were kind of just off uh, outsourcing it 
to either a CPA and overpaying or trying to do it themselves in a, in a spreadsheet. Um, so we, again, just really listen to them. It's funny because our slogan is, um, you mentioned earlier, you, know, you want to save time and money. Our slogan is save uh, time is money, save both. And so we're trying to make sure that uh, we save them time in the user experience, but more importantly, money, because we actually allow them to manage their finances and pay their taxes and make, get the, uh, the highest deduction possible. I love that. It's a nice slogan. I hadn't heard that yet. Um, all right. Well, to bring this back to Kentucky, uh, as we, as we wrap things up here, uh, first off, I want you guys to realize the significance of these companies being built here in Kentucky. I mean, these are some world-class startups being built right here in the state. And I think we can all agree that we want to see more of that going on in the state. We want to see more fintech companies and, and more attention be paid to the types of companies like that that are being built here. Uh, so my last question to all of you guys, I'm going to save Evan for last, cause I know he's outspoken on this is uh, what can the state of Kentucky do to, to make it a better environment for fintech companies to arise, whether it be funding, talent, uh, support uh, in, in the various ways? I don't know, anything that comes to your mind when, when I say, what can Kentucky do to help fintech companies flourish here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think like events like these is a really good start. Um, you know, I think Kentucky is very much focused on a few verticals, you know, healthcare being very big here. Uh, but there are now, you know, different segments that are actually growing. I mean, this is, you know, Captain and Simba having be, be here in Kentucky is, is pretty awesome. And so I think, you know, having a community engagement, a little bit more education on fintech, um, and maybe, you know, one of the things that we could do is just have a little bit more, um, you know, VC funding, uh, in this space specifically in Kentucky to have like a dedicated vertical to it. And I think that would spread a lot of awareness as well. Um, but these are a few. Yeah, Demetrius, I'll, I'll pass that one on to you as well. And I feel like you might say funding as well. So if, if you do want to talk about funding, talk about what current fintech founders could do if funding's not in Kentucky, because I know that you and Evan both have had a shared experience in finding that funding elsewhere. Yeah, you know, you guys ask that question pretty often, and I, and I love it, except for I'm always like uh, confounded by it. Um, like at the end of the day, like for me, I would say as it relates to funding, it's really a function of like making sure that um, people have real relationships. I think what we do here in Kentucky better than anybody else in the country, and I'll I'll bet money on it. Um, I didn't win the Powerball, but um, you know, I'd bet a lot of cash that we do relationships better than anybody in this country, and you know. Building those relationships is what matters in terms of your all, your success in fundraising. And so, yes, you're going to have to go to New York. Yes, you're going to have to go to San Francisco. It doesn't mean that you have to move your company there. Um, there's a lot of captainites in here um, that are are based here in Louisville, Kentucky. And and from my view, it's really um, uh, the state could take less of a battered view. You know, and sort of say, okay, yeah, I know you're going to the coast. I know you're going to go raise a hundred million bucks. Um, we'll be here when you get back. You know, um, and sort of taking that view. Yeah, I love that you brought that back to community and and connections because that's all we hear on Middle Tech whenever we ask similar types of questions. What is this community doing well? It really is the the people here that make this this place special. I think that's something that we should continue to invest more of our time and focus into. Evan, talk about your experience. I know your your primary thing is probably going to be funding. So let's just kind of zoom into that. Talk about how you've handled the challenge of funding in this area, maybe why you think the dynamic is the way it is and what your advice would be to, to other founders. 
Yeah, so our, our experience just from our pre-seed round, uh, which we did last year, was it took me about five months to raise 300K here in Kentucky and Middle America, and then it took me about three weeks to raise 300K more on the coast. And so there was just this really big difference, and I'm glad I got to the coast because I'm not sure I would have finished that round. Part of my problem was there just wasn't a lot of understanding or sophistication around fintech in this region. And the second I got to the coast, there was way more understanding around the business model, how you can leverage it. Uh, so there's just a big difference. And I think what the state could do is, of course, we could always have more capital. That's just not something we can easily solve. That comes through you know, generations of, of exits and sophistication. So I don't know if we can immediately solve that. What I think we can do, though, is open up a pipeline or a highway between Kentucky and the coast. And so, Demetrius, I know you do this a lot. You travel from here to San Francisco or New York and back and forth. You know, I, I'm, I'm starting to think more about can the state create some kind of program with flights getting so cheap, or it's almost like a passport program where we subsidize founders' ability to go to the coast rather than just make them or force them to move there because there's nothing here for them. And so me as a, as a founder, I love Kentucky. I'd love to keep my business here. But at some point, some investor on the coast might want me to spend more time there, or I might not have a choice and I might have to move there. But I think there's an opportunity with flights getting so cheap that the state could, again, subsidize my ability to fly from here to San Francisco. And that's out of some kind of fund. And that would allow more mobility for founders to go to that coast, coastal city where there is more sophistication, where there is a much larger network around fundraising. I think that's something that I've been throwing around that I'd love to hear your all's thoughts on. D, I know you do this a lot, but from a founder that's you know brand new that might not have the funds to pay for a flight very frequently, there might be an opportunity for the state to step in and say, hey, let's subsidize these, get these founders into the networks within San Francisco or New York and allow them to jump back and forth. That, that's something I've been thinking about because I know that I wouldn't, I'm not sure where Simba would be if I didn't kind of take that risk out of my comfort zone and just go travel to San Francisco and see what would happen. And I met people that ended up funding the business. Um, and last time I was there, this is kind of the, the dichotomy of what's going on in San Francisco versus here. I was at a friend's house and there were probably 20 people in his house. There was a party that was thrown as just a wine night. And the founders there were between 18 and probably 25. I was the oldest founder there, um, which was, which was kind of unique. And I talked to all these founders and asked them how much money they had raised. And in that room alone of 20 founders, there was more money raised in that room than all of Kentucky I found in the, in the last year. And I was just like, how is this possible? We've got to figure out how to get founders more access to these networks. This is only 20 people. And I flew out there on a flight that was, you know, $150. And, you know, maybe some founders can't afford that, but it'd be nice if the state said, hey, if you are building a company, here's 50% for flights, go to San Francisco, go to New York, because we know that's where the money is. The money's not here. We want you to be a Kentucky company, but let's create the, you know, the, the rails for you to go back and forth. That's just something I've been throwing around, but I think it's critical that founders here just need to be told to go to the coast more rather than stick here. While you might want your company to stick here, the, the money's there and the networks are, are, are there. So I think that's just something to think about. Yeah. It's a little bit of a narrative violation, I feel like, but it's also, I feel like it's a conversation we should engage in and just, you know, I think we're going to be able to point to more examples of, of how it worked. Um, if yeah. I can see real quick, what do you, what do yeah, you think yeah. about, about that idea? I, you know, there, there are, again, a lot of people in this room who see me go to the coast quite frequently. And so, um, 
at the end of the day, it's actually sometimes a little bit about infrastructure. So as founders here get more successful, right, um, we have the ability to then network. I think um, Ari Bloom, who's a founder here in Louisville um, in the ed tech space, uh, decides he's going to go to TechCrunch Disrupt. And I couldn't make it. And but I was getting invitations to things and I was just forwarding him all the invitations that I was getting. Right. Hey, go to this. Hey, here's the law firm that we use. Here's the and it's that level of relationship and interaction that gets you embedded. And so I do agree with you that I but I, I think it's a step further. Um, I'm I I don't particularly love um, small gestures. Um, and so I think if you're going to put an embassy in Japan or wherever the state of Kentucky has one, um, you know, you probably need one in San Francisco. Um, and there's a direct correlation to those relationships. Listen, they've got dry powder that they haven't invested. I mean, to the tunes of billions of dollars. One of our investors is a nine billion dollar fund. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you have not because you ask not. Um, and so I think it's getting people to the place where they can ask more frequently um, of a lot of these folks. And, and frankly, like, I don't think there's anything that's keeping us from it other than um, our community saying, hey, this is why we need to do that. Like, as an example, every year people express outrage in the city about the city spending so much money on the Kentucky Derby, right? How could this city host a $100,000 party, right? And the reality is, is that that happened to be where I met Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest Airlines. That was my previous company's largest customer, right? And that happened on a weekend here, right? And so you think about the sheer number of people, the remembering that one of our core values as a community is that we do relationship well. And sometimes you just got to be in the room to do that. You know, you can't, you, who does a dinner over Zoom? Nobody. <laughs> you know, and so I think it's really like understanding what our strengths are and why we do what we do. It's a part of who we are as a community. And that's why we're willing to invest. And, you know, if we took as many plane rides and jet rides as our governors do, um, then we'd be halfway there already. Rafi, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to add on to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the key th theme is what we do as fintech companies is give access, right? And really kind of what we need is access at the end of the day. What founders need is access, whether that's to, you know, resources, funding, connection, customers. And if we provide and build an ecosystem, whether that's highways to the coasts, right? Or whether that's, you know, main events uh, where there's high profile people, um, that's all types of access that we can provide. And so, you know, basically what the, you know, city and state can do is just give more access. Yeah, to to like frame how serious this is, you know, I only, I, I just happen to know, I had one friend who was in San Francisco. Uh, his name was Nico. He, he He's from, you know, you know, Nico, he's from, he's from Louisville. He moved his company to San Francisco. Um and he was the only person I, I really knew in San Francisco. And I hit him up and I said, hey, like, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this round. I wish I hit him up from day one um, because from that one connection, about two, by the two weeks later, I had about 30 meetings set from that one connection. It was compounding of a network that I noticed. Um, so 
you know, from spinning my wheels for five months here in Kentucky, raising here to meeting, you know, one person. And then that turned into five that turned into 30 within two weeks. You know, I was having VC calls left and right. And it was just because of that one person. And so if you start to compound that over time, you know, that's when you start to see what happens in San Francisco. And, you know, last time I was in San Francisco, you know, raising money for our seed round currently, uh, one thing that I noticed was I talked to a VC out there and they ended up passing and they made a comment that one of the reasons they passed was they noticed I wasn't in the network. And that kind of bothered me. But if you start to spend more time there, you start to realize there truly is a network there and, and the VC space is built on trust. And so if you are part of that network and the more people that know you, the more trust is built. And if we don't build that trust here in Kentucky, then I don't know how we're going to build it and scale it to the coast if we're not sending people back and forth more frequently or to, you know, Dee's point, hiring people here that have that trust on the coast to say, hey, here's a great founder. You need to help fund this business. And there's not really many people here that have that trust in those circles or in those networks that we need to be tapping into. I know, I know we talk a lot about, and I'm not going to steer this out of the realm, but I, I want to be relevant to the people who are, who are in the room and people who are listening who say, well, I'm not a founder. And, and so you guys are talking about, you know, first world problems, right? You can't raise your millions of dollars, wah, right? And so I think the, the equitable thing is also to talk about it from the view of like, okay, these companies pay really well, right? It's not that you're talking about a job that is a $38,000 a year job. We're talking about living wage roles that employ people because we're working on solving big problems. And so when you think about it in that context, it's like, well, the next challenge is, okay, well, so then when I go and I raise the money, who, do, who does this community have to be in order for me to get the sort of talent to build a company here, right? And so it's like, you look out over the landscape and you're like, I need really, really talented people who are willing to work really hard on a really hard problem. And that's not some of the incumbent companies here, right? And I said that gently, I think. Um, that's not some of the companies that we know. And so what that means is that people have to be stretched in a way to, to work for these types of companies. And so what's been cool is that we've been able to actually find those people who are willing to sort of say, okay, I'll take a shot, I'll stretch myself, I'll really challenge what I know um, and really be a part of something that's bigger. And so, and then that's, you know, you know, you get a few of those people and then they bring more people and it just kind of all works, you know? Yep, yep. Well, what I'm hearing is there should be a Middle Tech Founders house out in San Francisco. You heard it here first. There we go. <laughs> um, no, I'm not really kidding. Um, anyway, all right. Thanks so much. Let's give our panelists a round of applause. Thank you guys for attending.